All right. Welcome to the Bootstrapped Experience Podcast, where each week Bjorn and I talk about our experiences running our bootstrapped SaaS businesses. So what have you been up to, Bjorn? Hey, Jack. Yeah, it's been a good week. I've had my wife working full-time on everything this week, which has been good. Her operation was postponed, so we could actually get started on some stuff. And it's been really good fun just having somebody to bounce ideas off. We've been talking branding and marketing and just structure to the days and stuff. So it's been nice to not be so in my own thoughts about all these things, but just talking aloud about a lot of the stuff that we're looking for the future and how to position ourselves and all that kind of stuff. So it's been a lot of fun. So she's mostly working with bookkeeping and then some marketing branding stuff. Is that right? Yeah. So the bookkeeping stuff is something that she was doing at her old work. So she's just bringing over that knowledge and keeping it sort of up topped up, but it's not a lot of work in it. Once you know where all the bills are for, then it'll max take like an hour a week or something to get everything sort of done, which is really nice because then we can see what we're spending money on and stuff like that a little bit easier than we normally would. But the fun part about having her join is that she's got a great eye for like design and brands and stuff like that. She's good on social and then using a lot of that to coordinate all the marketing efforts and also branding and sort of our positioning and things like that. But just she'll be able to spend a lot of time getting into all the details and the nitty gritty that makes like a brand pop, I guess you could say, for lack of a better word. But being able to go into the really tiny details and making sure the imagery is correct and that we're consistent and stuff. And I haven't been great at that over time. So I think it'd be really nice to sort of just give everything a once over. And then her role would be sort of, for the stuff that she doesn't have a lot of experience with, would be to find the right people or work together with other people and coordinate that. So yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. But marketing and branding will be the main things that she's doing. And then the bookkeeping sort of something that she's good at as well, which helps out. That's so cool. Yeah, I know for me, I've had like 15 different logos over the years for me to be testing. Nothing's consistent. Like I start working on that stuff and then like, yeah, you know, let me work on a new feature instead. It's more exciting. So it's awesome you have that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. Like I really like design and branding and stuff, but yeah, I'm the same. I'd much prefer to sort of get into the nuts and bolts of the apps and I've been doing a lot of support over the years and stuff, but it's just really cool that there'll be time for it. It makes sense to do it upfront now as one of the first steps is to really sort of lock down the brand. And I guess I've had a lot of the brand in my head as well. So just putting it down on paper and turning it into an actual sort of brand guide and what's our tone? How should we write? Should it be professional? Should it be personal? Should it be playful? All these type of different things and sort of writing it down and formulating it more than we have. And then that will help a lot when we get to the next steps of going over the website, going over our app store listings, making sure the screenshots are consistent in style and design and wording and match that voice that we want to sort of be projecting as well. And then all of our drip emails and everything else. So it's like doing a big once over on all the stuff that's existing and just improving it and adding to that as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm curious how you sort of land on a good tone because for need A-B testing, it's kind of weird. I've always just had this super informal, friendly kind of tone, but like my competitors are like Optimizely and those kind of places that are just big enterprise things that are super formal about everything. And I, I always wonder like, would it be better if I adopted that same kind of tone or maybe this is like a good differentiator? I don't know. I think it's a good question. I don't know. I've always just felt that I should build the business that I want to have. And part of mine is to have like a friendly tone, a casual, but not overly playful, right? So I want to keep it to sort of my voice or how I would like to interact with customers and not going overly professional and also not overly silly because that just doesn't fit. 
And I think the Basecamp website is an excellent example of going for that really friendly, personal sort of down-to-earth feeling. They do some excellent like copywriting on that site. So if you're looking for something friendly and approachable, Basecamp.com is an excellent sort of example to look at. Nice. I use Basecamp, but I don't know if I've ever like actually sat down and analyzed what they're doing. I'm sure that I could learn some good stuff from there. Yeah, I guess it's Jason, and I'm sure there's a bigger team behind it, but he's sort of the main man on that. He's always had a sort of consistent style and voice, I think. That's cool. Here, it's been a busy week, as it has been the last few weeks, but I've been kind of doing an interesting project where I've been just talking to a ton of my customers. So in the last like week to week and a half, I've had like 10 face-to-face, at least Zoom interviews with customers, which has been super interesting. What was the purpose to get to know them better or to see what their pain points were? Or what was the goal, I guess? I guess I'm kind of looking at a product roadmap and figuring out what sort of comes next for need A-B testing in terms of features and things like that. So I kind of wanted to learn how people were using the app and also like what they felt like they were missing. Because there are solutions like Optimizely and things like that out there. And I kind of wanted to see like, why they landed on neat A-B testing versus some of these other ones, especially for like the shops that are doing A-B testing tend to be the larger Shopify shops in terms of revenue. So a lot of these guys do have the budget for whatever kind of A-B testing solution they want. I kind of wanted to see like, why need A-B testing and what were they missing? Yeah. Like obviously you're getting a lot of feedback, right? So both good and bad. And yeah. So what's the overall theme or I haven't done a lot of customer interviews in the way that you're talking about, right? So it's whenever people reach out and say, hey, can you guide me through this or whatever? And you end up having a really constructive talk. But was there anything glaring and stuff that you think, ah, I should have thought about that myself? Yeah, there's a few things. Like as far as just like how they use the apps, like when I created test previews and things like that, I did a really quick job of it. For me, it was almost an afterthought. And I was surprised to learn how much people rely on those. And that is not really like a great built out thing. You can kind of get an idea of everything, but it's not awesome. And so that was like, I think everyone mentioned that, like, I just wish the previews were a little better. And I wish I could kind of see what's happening before I launch a little more. So that was awesome feedback. And then just learning about like, how they build their tests was super interesting because some of these people have whole dev teams that they're running their tests through, which is great, but a lot of these guys don't. And if you're not really technically savvy with Shopify, like theme editing, it can be difficult to set up like good visual tests. So it's kind of given me some ideas on how to move forward. I've been working on like a visual test creator forever and it's probably time to prioritize that a little more. Okay. Is that like a bookmark alert or something where you can sort of click on this and where you're hovering over the site and being able to choose what you want to change and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's basically like a WYSIWYG HTML editor. And that sounds like super useful feedback, right? And things where you think, oh, well, hey, I just quickly threw this together. It's just like a nice to have. But in their case, they see it as a need to have, right? Yeah, absolutely. I never realized that. I was really surprised. Like every single person I talked to, brought up the previous. I need this. I use this every day. And that really surprised me. Huh. Interesting. About feature requests, right? Like if we had a better feedback loop, that may have been known earlier in a sense. Like, And yeah, it's great to chat directly to some customers and find out what they need. But to be able to have like a good feedback loop on feature requests. And now that support is handled 
not by myself anymore. And that was usually my way of sort of keeping a pulse on what is being requested all the time and what type of features do people want. And not having that same gauge anymore has made me think about, okay, how can I fix this feedback loop now? And the team are great at sort of passing along things that they hear of or things that are a bug or something like that. But and I've always been anti these vote for feature style click here to go to a feature request list and then you can upvote things that you think should be in the app because I've always been in the sort of thought where they don't always know the direction that we want to take the app or it shouldn't be sort of a democracy on how this app is built, right? You would have got a faster horse instead of a car, right? That's the old sort of saying. Yeah, so I've just been thinking about that same thing. And if now is the right time then to launch some type of feedback feature request loop of some sort to see because I can't gauge it myself based on the support anymore. Yeah, that's always a tough one because I've kind of considered that public roadmap thing as well. And I feel like the part it misses is almost like, I don't know, just to make up an example with need A-B testing. Maybe everyone wants previews and that might be the highest voted thing, like better previews, but maybe people are leaving because I don't have this other thing. There might be fewer people to vote for that, but that one's actually costs me money, whereas people can kind of deal with the preview issue. Yeah, the, again, that whole thing about not knowing what they don't know about sort of the direction of the app or you want to keep things simple as well because everybody's going to ask for everything. And the more features and settings you put into an app, the harder it's going to be to maintain over time and it's going to be harder for new people to come in. So your power users might be requesting something, whereas 90% of your users don't actually want this because it would make the overall experience more complicated or whatever. Yeah, and that's a huge thing like because the power users are going to be the ones voting more than normal users. And it's tough. Like, I definitely feel like need to be testing. There have been some things that I've added that overall I felt have made it a little more difficult to use. And that was probably to appease some power users, which if I could go back now, there's people that rely on it. I can't exactly remove it, but if I could go back, maybe I wouldn't have put it out in the first place. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I've made the same mistake with orderly print, which is my oldest app. And I guess the one that I built with the least experience. And that's got so many settings in it now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I mean, it is kind of built for power users in a sense. Like that's its point is to help high volume stores be more efficient in picking and packing and fulfilling these orders, sort of large volumes of orders. So it works with 500 orders at a time in a list sort of thing. Having more settings in an app like that to get it just right so that people can tweak it exactly right to get their flow as efficient as possible. But then... A new person comes in there and it's like, whoa, what's this? It's really hard for new users to get used to it unless they really sort of spend the time. So I've made that mistake as well. But it's really hard. Like you were saying, you can't really take features away again. Or at least I think it's twice as hard to remove them as it is to add them. So the way I've dealt with that a little bit is trying to use like sane defaults that will work for 90% of people. So like, for example, like when you're looking at the results of your tests, there's a whole statistical analysis, all this kind of stuff. And you can really chop that up and view your data in a bunch of different ways. Most people aren't even going to do that. Most people just want the basics. So I tried to sort of come up with defaults that would work for almost everyone. And that way they don't have to deal with the drop downs and everything else to sort of get their data just the way they want it to look. Yeah, I think that's smart. That's kind of what I always try and attempt to do as well is smart defaults, and then try to avoid having a setting at all. No setting is always better, in my view. And I think I've gotten a lot better at doing it in my newer apps where I like customization because two of the apps are design tools, right? So you need to be able to change colors and things like that. But then just keeping the main thing the main thing. Auto Printer Pro doesn't have a lot of settings. 
because it doesn't need them. You've got this liquid document that you can customize however you want. But other than that, there's not a lot of different settings to sort of add to the complexity or the overall thought process in how the app works is quite easy for people to understand, I think. That's one thing I've been really enjoying with Translate CI is that like there's very little front end or user interaction with this app. Like you basically you set it up, you connect your project, and honestly, this thing can run forever and you might never log in again unless you want to change some account settings or something or add a new language, which I love that. Like it's tons of heavy lifting on the back end, but just the app itself is like two or three pages. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I find the UI the time consuming part, right? I'm not sure about you, but I enjoy the back end stuff more than I do the UI. Definitely. And like, I guess when I started, I didn't realize how important that was. I was like, well, it's functional. It basically works. And then very quickly, I was getting feedback that like, this is confusing or like I did this thing and it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. And very quickly hit me like, oh man, you really do need to spend the time with this. That's where I feel really lucky now where I like designing user experiences, like trying to make things easy, but I don't enjoy the coding part of that. <laughs> yeah. But Arjun, the developer, he's doing an excellent job in getting all that hooked up and using this stimulus framework. Yeah, it's going really cool. It's fun to see the whole Polaris Shopify thing taking shape more and more. But yeah, I'm just happy that he seems to have a really good grasp on those things. <laughs> so I can think more sort of high level and doing the requirements and doing the actual designs. And stimulus is like, that's like the sort of JavaScript front end framework you're using. Is that right? Yeah. They don't want to be called a framework because it's really just a utility sort of way to tie things together. But it's, it's really quite smart in the way that it works. You don't have any sort of state in the actual JavaScript itself. It's built on top of the mutation observer API. So it's basically looking at changes on the page. So if like an element appears and that element has a data attribute on it, hooking it up to one of these stimulus controllers, then it automatically adds all the events and things to handle this thing. Yeah, and then when it disappears from the page, it automatically removes all the event listeners and things for it. So it's a really nice way to build a component behavior for your UI. Yeah, we've used it for like a slideshow thing. We've now built like an autocomplete, or I should say Arjun has built. <laughs> I haven't. But like a autocomplete where as you add things, it adds these little tags. So it's like a little, it's basically based on Shopify. So if you've ever had tags in a Shopify admin, you search or type a word, press enter, and it will add that as a tag above the search box. And you continue to add more as you want. They have a little X on them so you can remove them again and so forth. But it's amazing how much of that can be created with very, very little code if you just use this framework correctly sort of thing. That's awesome. Yeah, I've been using Livewire and Alpine.js for Translate CI. So I didn't know these before. I'd used Vue in the past for UDB testing, but I figured this is kind of a good, like the front end is so small. I didn't feel like I was biting off too much to try to learn something new. And it's great. Like It's so weird. Like The JavaScript in Livewire is almost handled for you. So basically, you write the endpoint in PHP like you're used to, and with almost no code, Livewire just knows to go and hit those endpoints and get the data it needs. So just like as an example, when you put in like your Git repos into Translate CI, so it can connect to it with like no JavaScript, it's able to go hit my application. I can check if that repo actually exists, and we can access it and give the user like a validation error if not like in real time without hitting it. And it's awesome. Yeah, I was 
so impressed with that because like that would have taken me weeks, I feel like, with my JavaScript skills and other things. <laughs> yeah. I think Livewire, it was the inspiration for something called stimulus reflex for the Rails word. So Livewire came first and then Rails world sort of used it as inspiration for building this thing called stimulus reflex, which ties together stimulus and the sort of reflexing like Livewire where if you add the right attributes to the HTML, that automatically hits this endpoint in your app and loads it all up and does all the JavaScript as well. It does it over WebSockets, I guess. Yeah, I've seen that and we've worked a lot with it. Rails has come up with a new sort of abstraction in a similar way called Turbo. Ah, uh, yes, I saw that. Yeah, and that's what we're using in the app now. And it's still sort of newish, so it's hard to sort of know what's the right way to do things, but there's lots of good tutorials popping up and stuff. And it simplified a lot of our code as well because you don't have to write all the boilerplate JavaScript or Ajax sort of handling and things like that like you used to in the past. It's so cool. This stuff just gets easier like as time goes on. I mean, it's amazing just in the last few years how much better these frameworks and tools have gotten. Like I see a lot of people doing like the no-code, low-code web apps and stuff like that, which I think are awesome. And I feel like there's never been a time for someone to learn how to create a web app from scratch. I think there's so much cool stuff out there to really do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it kind of like it was a pendulum where everything went like full JavaScript for a while and now it seems to be coming back to these sort of I don't know, more mature, <laughs> older frameworks. No, but I think Rails and I'm sure PHP is doing the same. Oh, sorry, Laravel, that they're sort of borrowing the best parts from these JavaScript frameworks that have come out. And I think a lot of the JavaScript frameworks seem to be moving slightly more server-side again now as well. Like React is also doing like server-rendered React components now, and which is kind of going back the other way, right? Yeah. I think one really cool thing about these ecosystems too, I've seen mostly in the last like two years or so, are just that these developers were working for free on these projects forever. And so many of them have been able to like build functional businesses around these, which is awesome. Like the Livewire guy just started taking GitHub sponsors like a year or so ago. I saw he posted like he made around $100,000 his first year just working on Livewire with his GitHub sponsors and was able to quit his job or whatever he was doing. And that's amazing. Time. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Is that the same guy that did the Alpine? Yeah, yeah, same guy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was sponsoring him for a while myself. I actually just stopped last week. I was sponsoring him for like a year and I don't use Alpine, so I thought, hey. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I used it for a while, but yeah, I like his approach to it. And I think he was one of the sort of pioneers of trying to do it that way, right? Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, I know for like, I got sucked into it because he had like some tutorial videos he had made that you could get if you sponsored him. And I was like, well, I should do it anyway because I'm using his project and the tutorial videos were so good. Like it just really walks you through everything. So there's so many ways to make money online these days, right? It's pretty crazy compared to what it was a while ago. Well, yeah, because I'm a banjo player, as I've mentioned. And like, I'm amazed how many banjo players are making a living on the internet playing banjo. Like how crazy is that? There's like a couple guys... I sponsor on Patreon because they come out with like videos and lessons and things like that. And it's like, I mean, you can see on Patreon like how many sponsors they have. And it's like, these guys are making like a good, like how many professional banjo players in history do you think there have been? Like probably more now than ever, which is crazy because no one plays this stupid thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be tough pressed to sort of find somebody that's a household name that's a banjo player. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I like the fact that you can sort of support these niche areas. Patreon's been a huge thing for that. 
I think YouTube's done a good job as well. Yeah, they're really good at like surfacing these people because usually I find out about them on YouTube just from the recommended videos or whatever, then start watching all their videos, then end up making my way to their paid site or Patreon or whatever they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Speaking of money and funding, what do you think about like these companies that do, there's like Tiny Seed, Earnest, and stuff like that, and the bootstrap versus taking on funding? Yeah, I always think a lot about this because I've considered it from time to time. Like, oh, it'd be nice if I could just get the funds to like hire an extra person. Like, I'm not quite there and like I can't really afford it on my own and still pay my rent and all this kind of thing. But I've always resisted and just kind of done things myself. And I actually, I posted on Indie Hackers a while ago, maybe, I don't know, four or six months ago, kind of asking why do bootstrap funders take funding and our bootstrap business owners take funding? And they all kind of weighed in, which was cool. Like Sahil from Gumroad and Tyler Tringus and Rob Walling and talked about like why people sign up with their funds or whatever. And it seemed to be the overwhelming thing was like their sort of support network they bring with them, which is awesome. I mean, that was one thing I definitely lacked in the beginning was just a network of people doing the same thing as me. I could get help from or people that had been doing it much longer than me. So I definitely see the value in that. I guess my concern, and I think these guys try to alleviate this, is just part of the reason I bootstrapped a business was so I didn't have to answer to other people and work a million hours and be in meetings all day, all that. And that would be my worry if I took funding is I would end up in that situation, which is kind of the last thing I want to do. But maybe these guys don't do that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's what holds me back from it as well is I don't want to grow it at whatever cost, right? So I want to build the business that I'm proud of and that fits in my lifestyle and time frame and everything else. It's not the other way. I want the business to work for me and not me working for the business sort of thing. But I can definitely see the value in it in being able to grow faster if you have the backing, the money, as well as the expertise that these companies bring. And obviously, it's hard for me to sort of say too much about it because I don't know what these non-traditional VC sort of funding places, what they expect of you. Or if it is just, hey, here's some money, we'll check in every three months or something and then best of luck sort of thing. But I can't imagine that that's how it works. But I'm sure they do probably work quite hard. So it is more that way than the full VC grow at any cost sort of thing. But yeah, I don't know. And I have a similar feeling like you. I came from the finance world. So meetings and growing and being obviously you want to be productive, but like aggressive, like, oh no, you gotta just keep moving, you gotta work long hours. That's not what I want to go back to. So I'd hate it if my business turned into that. I remember having a conversation maybe a year, year and a half into starting need A B testing with a guy who owned a SaaS business that had grown pretty big, like I think they were in the five to ten million dollar revenue range. He had like twenty employees and I was talking to him and I said, you know, it's weird. Like, I feel like I'm doing okay. I think at the time I was making maybe five or 6,000 MRR. And uh, I said, you know, it's weird that like, I'm only working like 15 hours a week on it. And I feel like there's so much more I should be doing. He was kind of like, well, hold on. He's like, you're making five, $6,000 a week. Like, yeah, you probably want to grow that a bit. But if you're working 15 hours a week on it, that's amazing. You've created a lifestyle business. Now you have to decide, do you want to throw 60 hours a week and hire 10 people and make this giant thing? Or do you want to relax and live your life and have this thing supporting you? And at that time, I was like, he's right. That's probably 
the route I want to take. Yeah, I think it's quite natural in a sense where you almost have to actively not do it to it hire isn't a default. Yeah, yeah. And like we've been talking about, I've tried to do a similar thing where I've tried to hang on as long as possible without hiring and everything else. But I think also my mindset has changed now where I want the help and I want to not do it all myself. But I waited until I was ready and not that the business was sort of asking for it, right? So in the past, I was able to do other things like implementing better support site and doing a lot more help articles and then making sure that those articles are seen before they contact support. And that was a great way to reduce my workload, right? So just sort of looking at it from a different angle instead of only seeing hiring as the only option, there's a lot of other stuff you can do to make your business more efficient. So you, you can stay in control and make the ride what you want it to be in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing I'm seeing with these Shopify guys too, I've been talking about, I think is really cool is like they tend to, at least I will say like the larger stores that are still like one or two person businesses, they tend to work with a lot of agencies rather than hire, which I think is interesting. I've never really done that. And the reason why is just that the price tag is usually so much higher for an agency than an employee. But I mean, it's probably worth it, really, because there's all that extra overhead with having an employee, too, that you don't get with an agency. And they have their processes in place, like they can hit the ground running day one, no training. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think with an agency as well, you don't have that long-term commitment. Of course, it's not sort of use and then move on to something else, but you don't have that same, hey, I need to find work for this person. because oh, absolutely. Paying. Yeah, or if we have a quiet month or something, then what am I going to do? Agencies are really good in that sense. And they can also scale up without the added risk on your business as well, right? So maybe they have like efficiencies of scale in the sense where if your account is not asking for something, they have another account that, where they need a person. Yeah, for sure. Like that's honestly one of the bigger things that move me towards working with agencies is that I can't imagine letting someone go if I had to. Like if the business was just floundering, whatever, like I couldn't afford it anymore, that'd be so awful for me. But an agency, it's like, ah, oh, they got 20 other people. They don't care that much. It's not a huge loss to them. And that would make me feel much better about it. Yeah, I think it makes it much less commitment in a sense. I'd hate the day I have to fire my wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But luckily, it doesn't look like that for the time being anyway. <laughs> With funding, I wonder, like, they kind of listed two reasons also in that thread. Like the financial reasons, other than just their network, were... A, I'm at XMRR, which is like really close to being able to quit my job. I'm not quite there. And they use that money to sort of push them over that hump so they get a runway and can leave and work full time on it. Or they use it to hire, which, yeah, I guess that would work. I would feel really weird about hiring off of raised money just because if I don't have the incoming revenue to support that hire, I feel like you're really taking a risk with this person's life, you know? Yeah, unless it's a huge amount of money, right? But yeah, you're basically starting a fire and hoping it doesn't sort of burn you in the end. <laughs> and I think like from what I've seen, and I could be wrong about this, so maybe I shouldn't be talking about something I don't know anything about, but it looked like from what I was seeing, the raised amounts for these small bootstrap businesses were in the fifty dollars to $100,000 range, which doesn't give you necessarily a ton of runway for employees. But you got to make that up pretty quickly. Yeah, I think so too. Unless you're in a country where costs may not be quite as high. But I'd imagine these are mainly US or like European companies being in most cases, yeah. So maybe the idea is to see, hey, if you threw some marketing money at this, what would happen, right? And maybe hired a couple of really key roles 
and maybe do it with equity or something like that. So you keep the salary low, but the equity high in a sense. Yeah. Like I know for me, like when I went full time, I wasn't quite at the point where I was fully able to live off of what AB testing was making at the time. And I had runway, but for me, it was less of a risk because I was like, okay, you know what? I can do this for like six months. If I haven't raised the revenue to the point then where I'm like not dipping into savings anymore, then it's time to find a job. But it'd be a much worse situation if I was like, okay, if I don't do this in six months, I'm going to have to fire three people. I don't think I could do that. Yeah, it's not the kind of pressure I want to put on myself, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. It's like good pressure when it's the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to have to get the resume out and start sending it in places. That's like a good pressure. Like you don't want to do that, but it's not going to like screw you up too bad. Yeah, definitely. But I guess there'll be generally, I'd say, writing checks to companies where there is promise and there is a proven sort of path to revenue is what I'd imagine. And it's not so much built on hype, but actual numbers. And then that just sort of gives them the fuel that they need to get to that next stage. It does seem to be like it looked like when I was kind of researching and this is a while ago, but it looked like they were looking for companies in that like five to 10,000 MRR range. They're not pre-revenue or losing money or anything. No, exactly. Yeah, I think you're getting in really early and just sort of at the start of the hockey stick if you can. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, I'm not planning on taking any funding. I've been through the wheel of valuation a couple of times in the last year. And I was pretty close to selling the whole thing at one point for a considerable amount of money, but it just didn't feel like, hey, it's not quite the time yet. What am I going to do with myself? <laughs> you know, like, and I just feel like I have more in me and then maybe two, three years or something. But it's something that can take a lot of effort and mental strain. And it's a heavy decision sort of thing at the same time of whether you want to take this money. And I guess taking on investment is different than selling or something like that. But originally, I was also looking for an investment more than to sell the whole thing. But generally, some of the companies I was talking to anyway were more in the business of buying companies and not just sort of investing in them. So but yeah, it's an interesting space. It feels like it's heated up in the Shopify space a lot recently as well, right? And you're seeing very large investments and also purchases of businesses. Yeah, I've been looking at Micro Acquire recently, and they list a lot of Shopify businesses on there. Really cool stuff. And it was mostly because I saw a guy on Twitter sold his Shopify app at like a ridiculously low price. And I remember seeing like, God, I wish I could have just swooped in there, but I didn't see it until it was too late. I've seen that as well. I've got a call with Andrew, who has started MicroAcquire in a couple of weeks, I think, just to chat it over. Also, just around partner metrics. If you've got a business that you want to list on MicroAcquire, you can put some graphs up of your revenue and things like that, and they can hook up different sources to that. So it might be ChartMogul or Bare Metrics, or I'm not sure if Stripe can be plugged in directly. Or, But there's a different ones. Yeah, but we're going to have a chat about whether partner metrics should be there or what would be required to make that possible for them. Yeah, that'd be very cool. Yeah, it's funny. I've kind of been browsing like there's a decent amount of Shopify apps listed on there. I'm just kind of thinking like, oh, what if I could add another app here? But I always bite off way more than I can chew. So I'm not doing it at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we were talking about burnout last week, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, let me just buy a business. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not the right time for you. No, no, for sure. That's cool. Last week, we were talking about burnout. And I was saying I was trying to structure my days more by having like a set schedule of Monday, I do this, Tuesday, I do this and whatever. And it's been really good. And I got sort of a feature that I've been holding off on for quite a while done this week and not 
by ignoring everything else, which is usually how it sort of works for me. Is like, hey, every now and then I'll go, right, that's it. I'm going to use the next three days to build out this feature. And then everything else sort of gets put on pause. Whereas here, it's like, I know I've got Mondays to sort of do my planning and base camp and stuff like that. And then Tuesdays is for development. Wednesdays is for development. Thursdays is for support and docs and all that type of stuff. I shouldn't say support, but it's like improving the tools and things for support. So not, I do support every day, but, and then Friday would be marketing. Now it's, I'm doing it according to the schedule. And by doing development in the schedule, I know I'm going to get time for it every week and I don't sort of pause everything else in that same time. So it's been amazing how such a little change can both motivate, but also just put some better structure in my days and being quite strict about following that structure as well. Yeah, I think that's a really smart idea because just thinking for me, and I think a ton of SaaS founders are like this, is you kind of retreat into code when you're doing stuff you don't really necessarily want to work on like marketing. But if you're like, well, it's Friday, it's marketing day, code editor is closed today, it makes it a little harder to do that. Exactly. It's been really good. And just knowing that, hey, next week I'll have two days set aside to do coding again. And then it's like a challenge. Can I get this feature done in two days, right? And last week I had a few smaller features that I wanted to get out. So I was able to get like three different changes done. And then this week I managed to get, when you install one of my apps, before you'd get these sort of default templates. So like an invoice, a packing slip in order Printer Pro. So you have a returns form and things. And you can translate them into whatever language you want, but you have to go through that step to go through and update the wording. It might take like two minutes per document or something because we structure all the words together so it's easy to translate and everything. But then this feature was, well, why not just do it for them when they install the app or when they create a new template, you ask which language would you like this in and then bang, it's there, right? And it just saves them that 10 minutes and also that feeling once you've just installed the app, it's like, oh, wow, this is ready to go sort of thing instead of thinking, oh, now I need to select the language or now I need to go in and translate. Like, I think a lot of German Shopify merchants, they're pretty used to going in and having to change all the wording is like one of the first steps whenever they install an app. So it's a nice way to show that you care sort of thing to have that set up. Yeah, I was able to get that done and it's out and ready and going and it's been good. Very cool. Yeah, I always think that's interesting is that like I have like no users in my apps that aren't from English speaking countries, which really points to sort of making some of that stuff easier for them. Like I have like almost no German users, for example. That's interesting because you'd think it doesn't rely so much on language, does it? Like if you have your store, if it's in German, then you just run your tests using German, right? Yeah, my guess would be that I think a lot of people are looking at the documentation and that sort of thing before they install. And if they're not super competent in English, they might just not understand how the app works. Sure, and we were talking about as well, it's not like, something that people are super versed in either, right? Right. Yeah, I think if you can watch that little video I have, like that's great. But if you don't understand it, actually, man, I should at least get subtitles for that video. I didn't even think of that until just now. <laughs> I'm sure there's a service out there where you can just type onto a, an existing video, right? It's got to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to look at that. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Small wins. I'm quite surprised by that though, because I think there are some European countries that we're seeing tons and tons of uptick in Shopify users from these countries at least? Yeah, about half my users are from Europe, but they tend to be from the more English-speaking countries. So like Netherlands and some of them where everyone kind of speaks English. Yeah, definitely. It varies a lot by country in Europe how well they speak English. Yeah. What are your plans for the next week then? You know, it's funny. So I publicly committed to this a couple of weeks ago and then our audio got lost. So it was great because I got a couple of free weeks. But for anyone <laughs> I owe... 
a beta use for Translate CI, I will contact you or please contact me. I'm standing up the servers this week. I'm getting it out there. Yay! Yeah, hey, congrats. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, hey, cool. That's always an exciting time to launch a new product. Yeah, I think it'll be really good. I'm excited. Yeah, um, working more on this brand stuff and getting the marketing straight. I did some work with a guy called Keir Whitaker actually a couple of years ago. He used to work on the Shopify marketing team and one of the earlier Shopify employees. And really nice guy, lives in the UK. And he was doing a consultancy service after he'd left Shopify in sort of marketing strategy and doing like an audit and a roadmap for apps. And I took him up on it and flew over to the UK and talked to him and spent a day together so he could get an idea of what I wanted as well to make sure that the roadmap fitted with my wants and, and what I'd like. Anyway, so I got this 45-page report from him with step-by-step of what he would recommend and a checklist and everything. And I've done a couple of the things on it, but then the rest of it has just sort of waited two years. <laughs> so now we've just been reading through that today and sort of ticking off pretty much everything that we say, oh, this is a great idea. That's a great idea. And we should do this. And a lot of it's just good common sense, but doing it in a really structured and making sure it gets done sort of thing. So yeah, so we're going through that document and I'm finally sort of executing on it. That sounds so useful. Yeah, super. Like really cool. Well worth the investment. I'm not sure if he's still doing them, but I'll check with Kier and then I'll drop a link in the show notes if anyone else to chat to him. But highly recommended. And yeah, it's going to be fun to go over that and plan out and start executing on it. Nice. That sounds awesome. Yeah, let's hope so. But I look forward to hearing how the beta goes. And yeah, we'll talk next week. All right. See you then.